Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Grants Podcast. Uh, I'm Jim Grant. With me today is Evan Lorenz. And uh, at the controls, at the dials, is Olatana Gay. Eric uh, Whitehead, our normal engineer, our usual engineer, is uh, actually spent the 4th of July in Cuba, for Pete's sake. Yeah, we'll talk more about that next week when we have Eric in our presence. I want to know some details. It is lovely to be with you all. And um, I don't know, I... Uh, I'd like first to get something off my chest. I, I walked from the subway to our broadcasting studio here at Two Wall Street. And Evan, you have never seen so many half-naked, slow-walking tourists in your life. Grants has been downtown for uh, 34 years, and every year brings fewer uh, business people and more tourists. I don't, I don't begrudge the tourists their presence here. I think it's nice they come down and see us. But I do wish they'd, they'd walk a little more briskly, Evan. I wish they'd also, uh, like, dress just a little bit more. So that, that will conclude this morning's editorial. Uh, this podcast is brought to you as, as have been so many, and for which we are grateful, by, uh, by Pitney Bowes and uh, the Pitney Bowes Send Pro. You'll be hearing more about our very gracious sponsor uh, presently. And I guess, Evan, it's also brought to us by us, right? It wouldn't be the same without us. Um, Evan, as you and I sit here with Olatan, something is happening in the world of finance having to do with interest rates, uh, which have been as still as a dead pond for a while. But today there is drama. Please enlighten us. What is happening? They're, they're actually rising. They're, they might actually get to a level that we as the interest rate observer can observe them. Well, um, in particular, sovereign debt, the, the emissions of sovereign governments are depreciating in price and appreciating in yield, no? Yes. And perhaps is one great sign of that. Two weeks ago or so, um, Argentina was able to float century bonds at a price of uh, 90, uh, 90 cents on the dollar. They actually rallied up to 93, and today they traded down to 88. They traded down two points. Is this the same Argentina that has defaulted at intervals over the past 100 years? I think only about eight times in the last 194 yeah. years. Yeah. Well, it will be interesting to see the, uh, the course of um, Argentine uh, securities prices. Evan, uh, I would like to commend you and to congratulate you before we proceed further on your weekend interview in Barron's. Ladies and gentlemen, Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of Grants, was featured in Barron's National Business and Financial Weekly. At least that's, that's what they call it when I was there a million years ago. I think it's now Barron's. But uh, Evan was in Barron's with a Q&A, and &A and uh, I, don't know, I, think was, I think it was fantastic. And also, I think the picture was fantastic. Evan, from now on, is going to be the face of Grant's. So I've yielded this to my deputy editor. I think that uh, the, uh, the visual improvement is, uh, is beyond doubt. So Evan, congratulations on your promotion to the face of Grant's. Hey, Evan, next up on this morning's agenda is the Fed's uh, meeting of its rate-setting committee. The June meeting just concluded and now out are the minutes of that uh, confab, and those minutes tell us a few interesting things. Will you take us through them, please? Sure. Um, th there's a couple of quotes that really stood out to me. Um, here's the first one. Corporate earnings growth had been robust. Nevertheless, in the assessment of a few participants, equity prices were high when judged against standard valuation measures. Here's a second. Few participants expressed concern that subdued market volatility, coupled with low equity premium, could lead to a buildup of risk uh, to financial stability. And uh, the final well, let's, one... Let's, let's, let's take those first two. Now, I, by the way, as to the middle one, I would say a few participants expressed concern. That is, the, there was concern expressed to use the passive voice, which, of course, is the bureaucrat's favorite. But if, if I understand this correctly, um, 
what the committee people are saying is that uh, the stock market looks a little high and uh, volatility looks a little bit uh, low. And, uh, you know, as they say in the Westerns, it's, it's too quiet out there. So they're saying if they could only speak plain English, which they seem incapable of doing. But what do we make of that? So the stock market is, uh, is up on stilts. That's obvious by many valuation metrics. And as measured by the so-called VIX index, index of volatility, the, the level of concern about uh, perhaps elevated valuations and uh, nuclear saber rattling in the, in the Korean Peninsula, all this is, expresses uh, lack of concern, indeed a, a deep-rooted, seemingly a deep-rooted complacency. So what does the Fed do about it? Well, right now they're doing nothing. It seems a little bit ironic, even though that they're concerned um, that the Fed is trying to reflate the economy through the wealth effect, through expressly elevating asset prices. Right. Evan, before you were so rudely interrupted by, by me, um, you were about to observe the Fed also commented upon uh, how welcoming and salubrious are financial conditions. That is to say, uh, uh, you know, the dollar exchange rate has, has come down. Uh, uh, credit spreads have narrowed. In general, the green, the light is green in finance. So, Evan, when you when you put together high prices, low volatility, and easy financial conditions, what do you get? You get what you get is a darn bull market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but what else do you get? You get unintended consequences, um, uh, things that the Fed probably didn't want happening. But it, it wanted to have happen. What has happened? No. Actually, Evan, if you would please read from Grant's interest rate observer. My favorite publication. So, uh, I mean, they expressly wanted higher prices. Th this is from the April 8th, 2011 edition of Grants. And, and we're uh, quote, uh, quoting Bernanke. Looking into the CNBC cameras late in January, the chairman emphasized the point. The policies, i.e. QE2, have contributed to a strong stock market just as they did in March 2009. QE and low rates boost activity through the so-called wealth effect. Right. Well, that if memory serves, uh, that was the occasion or one of the occasions on which the chairman singled out for special commendation the uh, the Russell 2000 for for its especially happy flight path uh, to the upside. So they wanted this to happen, right? They wanted asset values to levitate so that um, those owning balance sheets full of said assets would spend more and that spending would, as the phrase used to go, trickle down into the pockets of the uh, non-balance sheet uh, privileged portions of the community. It's a great theory, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Too bad it doesn't uh, work. Well, at least that's what the academic literature would say. Um, and this is from Granson, May 2nd, 2014. We're now we're, we're, we're quoting the people at Hoisington Investment Management. Uh, yeah. So in Hoisington's um, first quarter 2014 letter, um, they find little support for any measurable wealth effect. In analyzing the data between 1930 to uh, 2013, the Austin, Texas-based bond firm finds no wealth effect from the housing prices and a spending increase of less than one cent for every dollar appreciation in the stock market. Academic research, too, is, and we're quoting, is seemingly unequivocal in this conclusion, the letter continues. The wealth effect, financial and housing, is barely operative. Well, then, too, there is, there's, um, there is the obvious and yet seemingly overlooked fact uh, that there are two sides to a balance sheet. Now, if you raise up asset prices... You also increase the value of liabilities. And the, the problem is people who've owned assets have done pretty good uh, for the last eight years of the economic recovery. People who don't have, haven't done so well. 
But explain a little bit more the raising up and the value of liabilities. That's a, that's a hard concept to get one's mind around. How can the value of a liability increase? Is it just because rates of interest come down and, and, and you have to generate more, you have to, you have to furnish more capital to earn the income you desire? That, that, that's one manifestation of costlier liabilities, no? So certainly pension funds feel this. Yeah, discount rates go down, which mean that the future value of liabilities goes up. And the discount rates are going down because the yields on assets that you earn you earn money on are, are, are going down. So it's two sides of the same coin. Right. So the, so the Fed, by concentrating single-mindedly or, or, or at least fixedly um, on the asset side of the national balance sheet, to seem to overlook and certainly didn't discuss much the looming difficulties on the liability side as reflected most, I think, most vividly in the troubles that the pension funds are having in meeting their obligations. You can see this throughout the uh, the world of public pensions. Um, but you can also see it on consumer balance sheets. And, and this is something we wrote about just a few months ago. So if you look at just about any consumer lender, you're seeing an increase in consumer defaults. And it's not concentrated in one state. It's not concentrated in one type of consumer. It, it seems to be widespread and nobody has a great explanation. But when you peel down the data, it seems like it's especially bad for, for subprime borrowers. So you're seeing higher spikes in defaults from like subprime credit cards and subprime auto loans. And when you peel through the data, CPI, I think, has increased something like 12 or 13% um, since the end of the recession in June 2009. But the rate of housing inflation, especially rent, has gone twice that amount. Medical inflation has grown twice the amount of the general CPI. Now, homeowners have gotten a little bit of a tax break because they own an asset. Um, their mortgage interest rates have gone down. It's actually been much cheaper to service mortgage rates. Um, but people who rent have just seen continual hikes in, uh, in rent rates because cap rates have gone down, building prices have gone up, and people are trying to earn a return off of, uh, off of rental. Which brings us to the, uh, the most peculiar uh, position of the concept of inflation in today's monetary discussion. If you are of a certain age, which Evan, Lorenz, you are not, but if you're of a certain age, you look at the newspaper and you read as if it were turned upside down because uh, the Fed and people who speak for the Fed and in sympathy with it keep telling us that the rate of inflation is too low. What the Fed needs to do is to depreciate the currency of which it is the steward and guardian. Uh, the Fed defines price stability as a rate of inflation of two... How does this work? Uh, well, if you talk to the people you just alluded to, that is to say the renters of the world, people who rent an apartment, people who as renters happen to have a medical problem, they are wondering if the rate of inflation might not be a little bit too high. So the Fed, by harping on this idea that it must raise the prices of everyday things by 2% a year, is also, I guess, partly uh, intentionally, partly unintentionally, is raising up the value of assets, thereby raising up the liabilities, and in general is, is manipulating things to outcomes that it certainly didn't intend to achieve. Um, and this speaks to, to me at least, it speaks to the, um, the essential fundamental flaw in this business of, uh, of improvisational uh, radical policy uh, great experiments never before seen in the face of the world undertaken by these former tenured professors. I mean, we are living in a time of, uh, I say, of extreme monetary peril, 
the consequences of this, however, are to be sure speculative. The what you're seeing in the here and now is is a really fine bull market, except today in bonds. Yeah. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, let us hear now from our gracious sponsor, uh, Pitney Bowes, uh, which is the producer of SenPro. SenPro. Now, did you know that uh, compared to Stamps.com, uh, SenPro has three times the features at one-third the price? Yeah. Three times the features at one-third the price. Uh, you can print stamps at your computer, call it the Internet of Stamps if you like, and you can, if you like, uh, if, if you like, continue to wait in line at the post office. Uh, Pitney Bowes does not recommend it, but you have that right. You don't have to, though. That is the point. Uh, here, with the SendPro, no special equipment is required. You can print paid shipping labels from your computer for the U.S. Postal Service, for UPS and more. You can track your shipments from the same easy-to-use easy interface. And you can save money, too. Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users, uh, with savings starting at $0.03 cents per stamp. Uh, now, uh, if you want to learn more, as you certainly do, just visit pb.com slash grantspod. That's pb.com slash grantspod. I guess there's a dot com at the end of that. Oh, there is a dot com. pb.com slash grantspod. To find out about an introductory offer that features 90 free days of SendPro, along with what the Pitney Bowes people persist in describing as a free 10-pound scale, but which Evan and I in a podcast past have agreed is not actually a 10-pound scale, but it, rather it registers weights up to 10 pounds. Now, what we at Grants have done is to send away for just this scale and to take up our sponsor on its offer of 90 free days of SendPro. We've done that. We have not yet gotten our scale uh, nor have we launched our experiment with uh, SendPro. But, uh, you know, this is a journalistic publication, and we are pledged to the truth and to facts. Evan, is that correct? That's true. That's correct. So the next ad, uh, providing we get our 10-pound scale, which measures 10 pounds, I'm going to give you a, an objective report on the state of the Pitney Bowes SendPro, because we do a lot of mailing here. We have thousands of paid subscribers, and I suspect that... Uh, uh, that many more are waiting in the wings for the extra subscriptions still available. So anyway, so we are we are going to come back. I'm going to come back and uh, and tell you how this thing works. So thank you, Pitney Bowes. And um, yeah, so back, Evan, back to uh, the business at hand. I would like, Evan, to talk a little bit about some of our least favorite restaurant stocks. We're not going to name them because after all, we uh, are... Uh, <clears throat> high-priced publication for which people deserve to feel as if they uh, have uh, got their money's worth. But tell us about our friend John Hamburger's observation. He put this so well today. Uh, John Hamburger is the editor of, um, of Restaurant Monitor, right? Restaurant and Finance Monitor. And Franchise Times. And Franchise Times, right. Yeah, his last name is Hamburger. Yeah, he's in the journalism business about food. He's, he's tired of hearing that joke, so let's not make it. Yeah. But what John is, is a very, very keen observer and a shrewd judge of the world of finance, especially in his realm of restaurants. And what is he saying? Yeah. So he, he emailed us today saying, a mega-sized Tim Hortons is about to open up near my mother's house in St. Paul. It's located less than three blocks from a new Dunkin' Donuts and a mile from an established Caribou Coffee. The true story of what is going on in the restaurant business right now is there's too much capital chasing return in an industry that inevitably disappoints. And, and this is one of the ironic things about what the Fed's doing. So it wants inflation. It wants to keep you know business activity elevated. But when it pushes out too much easy money, it gets 
too much capacity in too many industries, restaurants being one of them, which again causes deflation because you have so much supply chasing kind of, you know, a certain amount of demand. While the, the Fed is able to help expand aggregate supply, they can't expand the, the, the supply of stomachs in America. So you're just having... I don't know. Somebody is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, um, I'm just about to send off into the um, email ether uh, a column that the FT asked me to write, and I have written it, most of it. And uh, this column is about, uh, it, in parts, about language. It is about the, the rhetoric of central banking and about uh, how the central bankers speak. And they speak in tongues. They speak, uh, they speak I mean, uh, they're economists. And, uh, and when they speak to their fellow tribalists, they speak in algebra and differential calculus. They don't speak in English unless they can have to. And their English, as they speak it to the world, is stilted and uh, affected and not altogether uh, straightforward. And uh, it leaves a little bit something to be desired in the candor department. And uh, what the FT wanted, which I hope I've delivered, you'll know by now because it will have been published, I hope. What the FT wanted is some glimmer of insight into the Fed's intentions with respect to its balance sheet. The papers that are full of talk, reporting the Fed's talk that our central bank is going to begin to unload some of the, what, $4.5 trillion worth of assets uh, that uh, it now owns, uh, having bought those assets with, which, with money that didn't exist until the Fed whistled it into existence. The Fed, seemingly, is on the verge of lightening up. It's been saying that since uh, 2011, six years ago. It's been 10 years since the crisis, six years since the Fed first started talking about policy normalization. And uh, so what's the Fed going to do? Well, what the Fed is going to do is it's going to raise its rate because uh, it says it's going to, possibly, it's going to peel off some assets or at least allow them to lapse as they come due maturity because it says it wants to, or maybe not. I'm thinking, Evan, that the Fed having engineered uh, this magnificent bull market, having tipped its hand with respect to its determination not to let the bull market collapse. The Fed is trapped into a regime of constant renewal of, of radical policies. Radical policies beget more of the same. Or am I repeating myself? Did I say this last week? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, well, it holds today as well. Um, Evan, is there something else well, we, we shouldn't, uh, we should, uh, we should, uh, bring to the attention of our ever so patient listeners. So one one of the the great ironies to me is um so the Fed wants to boost activity, which it does by boosting too much supply in the economy. That supply uh, kind of dampens inflation, and ironically, this fall in inflation may lead the Fed to uh, keep its accommodative policy for longer than it would otherwise do. So if you actually read through the Fed minutes, um, you I'm going to quote from them again. Some others uh, emphasize that deferring the decision until later this year uh, would permit additional time to assess the outlook for economic activity and inflation. Yeah, uh, yeah, more time. They need more time, more study. So, so by keeping policy easier for longer, they hope inflation will go up. But instead, they're boosting, you know, more excess capacity in the, in the economy, which helps, you know, keep inflation lower. Well, this this is uh, something that I, I I I fail to see in the moment, and uh, now can explain. I hope I'm not pretending to wisdom I did not possess when it was most important to have it in 2009, 10, and 11. Uh, but what is a, 
is seemingly obvious now is just what you said, Evan, which is that uh, ultra-low rates stimulate um, uh, the creation of excess capacity, which paradoxically works to knock down prices rather than to raise them up. So an ultra-easy Fed is not inflationary, but rather the opposite. That, at least, is what we see before our eyes now. But it begs the important question uh, of, of just how does inflation propagate, right? I mean... We, or, even, or even what inflation is. What inflation uh, there, is. there was a recent Fed note just out uh, uh, two or three days ago that said, while measured infl inflation volatility has come down dramatically from like the 60s and 70s, a large part of that might just be by how the index is created. Now, while inflation seems like a really intuitive concept, like how much you pay for goods, you have to measure a large basket of goods. And about a third of CPI overall is owner's equivalent rent. And that's not how much you pay for a house or how much you pay for a mortgage. It's you ask homeowners... If you were to rent your house out unfurnished to another person, how much would you rent it for? And this concept really hasn't tracked with, you know, the yeah. housing boom in the, in the 2000s, but it sometimes dampens inflation. But there, there's so many ways. That well, they... there, are, there, are, there are innumerable ways to look at inflation. There are, uh, of course, uh, many pseudoscientific ways of measuring it and adjusting it. Uh, I, saw, I saw something the other day. Uh, a friend of mine uh, at J.P. Morgan sent me something that uh, showed a consumer price index measurement taken to the third decimal point. Well, think about that. Uh, consumer price inflation, or perhaps the PCE, in any case, it, it was an official report from the um, estimable firm of J.P. Morgan, and it reported that um, a certain rate of inflation was, uh, maybe the first number was two. Two point, now I'm making this up, 1.3. Oh. Is that three? Yeah. Okay. So there was the first number, like a two number, and then three to the right of the decimal points, as if that could be measured. But think of the complexity of the process of measuring. Well, we did something. We sent our colleague Harrison Waddill uh, to trail a, uh, uh, a government price sampler, went to a supermarket and and uh, watched as the... Uh, as the uh, as, the, as the, the eyes and ears of the federal inflation chroniclers uh, went into, uh, you know, into the shopping aisles and, and looked for stuff. And, and you could see, he was a very conscientious person, was this price taker. But you could see the, the, the subjective choices he had to make to compile the index. If I recall, there was almost a quasi-crisis about whether a salad had enough nuts to actually qualify yeah. as a salad for the... Uh... Right. Was it a salad or was it a fruit salad? Right. So this is, this is, but to give the government and especially this individual its and his due, um, these were um, errors or at least amusing instances of, of, uh, of an attempt to get precise. And, and, and to, to, the point to me is that there's no such precision available. Certainly the margin of error in the taking of these data and the taking them down and in the adjusting of them for seasonal effects and for uh, imputed uh, quality of improvements, we call it hedonic adjustments in the trade. These things introduce errors that perhaps are much bigger than the inflation targets that the, uh, the central banks set up to hit. You know, central banks want 2% plus or minus a few dozen basis points. My goodness, the errors that you can, 
you can um, fall into in trying to sample prices and adjust them must be multiples of a few dozen basis points. You know, what is, you know, so how do you price, uh, how do you price, for example, YouTube? It's free, right? Well, it's free and that's not free. See, ads. What's the value of the ads? Well, you, I don't know. It's kind of a conundrum. Well, these, these are, are, are deeply philosophical questions when you you follow all the way down the rabbit hole. I don't know. I'm, well, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say, Evan, <laughs> is that uh, three decimal points, uh, three places the right decimal point is at least one place too many. I'm sa- I'm thinking it might be three places too many. But the spurious precision of our inflation calculations, on the one hand, and the Fed's per blindness about the nature of inflation, on the other hand. I think, deliver us into a set of, um, of intellectual traps that very few people are willing to acknowledge, much, much less explore. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Evan, um, thank you for being here. Olatan, you've done a great job. I know this without even listening to the podcast. And um, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, the Grants Interest Rate Observer Podcast. I thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.